Hi, and welcome to the Andy Gorman Golf One Putt Podcast. And uh, we're following up from the holiday weekend that we've just had. We had a slightly shorter version of the podcast, um, which we recorded just before the weekend. So we didn't actually have any tour talk uh, commentaries because he hadn't really got going. We'd seen the first round and saw that in America... Um, Boy, what a brutal golf course they were playing on. Definitely, Olympic Fields is definitely a US Open type venue, and they set it up definitely getting the guys prepared for that. And boy, are we going to talk about some uh, putting fest that took place uh, over the weekend. But um, we also had a tournament at the Belfry, um, and, and what a, a fantastic event! And you know, a golf course that's on my doorsteps, close to my heart, is where I learned my trade. Um, yeah, in the golf industry from 1985 to 1989, two pivotal Ryder Cups uh, in Europe's, uh, I would say Europe's favour, of course, but, um, you know, we, uh, a tremendous event there, which looked amazing on TV. We weren't allowed to be there, obviously. We are socially distancing crowds away from tour uh, events, but um, what an incredible uh, venue and it looked spectacular on TV, it really did, and it generally does, uh, to be fair. But with a good bit of weather, uh, we've had over the recent weeks, which isn't always great, of course, but um, you know, a bit of rain to color it all up, it looked incredible. And um, you know, tremendous playing surfaces, as you know, the Belfry now is renowned for. But um, I'm, I'm here, not on my own, it's not just me chatting away, um, my wingman and good friend. Gareth from Mediate is here. He's in the background. He is. Um, he's been doing some studies over the weekend for us as well. And uh, how are you, Gareth? Are you well? Yeah, really good, Andy. Um, busy weekend. A um, little bit of time with the family. Took the little man yesterday nice. to crazy golf and dino crazy I saw golf. That. Yeah, I saw, I saw your Insta post there. Was. Yeah, I thought, uh, yeah, definitely little man had a blast. I'm not so sure that the little big man didn't have a blast either. But um, <laughs> it, uh, um, yeah, I stayed away from the golf courses. I took my beautiful wife to uh, the Cotswolds. We had a phenomenal weekend, um, albeit a short weekend. It was Sunday for Monday uh, at Blenheim Palace and um, just the most incredible incredible place and those of you that don't know it's the, the um, resting place of Winston Churchill and uh, family home of the Churchills um, tremendous history phenomenal phenomenal location um, I would make a nice golf course about 2,000 of acres of rolling landscape in the heart of it wow. would, would make a phenomenal golf course facility but uh not so sure the Duke of Marble will be up for that, um, but but yeah, just just incredible. And then you know we spent a, a couple of days in around Woodstock and uh, and Oxford as well. It was just uh, just fabulous, just a nice and uh, you know and our first first weekend away, which is just ridiculous. We had planned to have a few days away, um, of course, around uh, Easter and you know, sort of our anniversary, but that didn't happen due to the lockdown. So we took advantage of the holiday weekend, um, which meant I didn't get to watch an awful lot of golf, uh, which is fine. Um, but the bits that I've seen, just incredible. Um, let's do a bit of tour talk. Let's talk. Yeah. Uh, where do we start? Because, you know, um, we can look at some stats, I suppose. Um, you know, well, I do want to say this. There's a young man on the European tour, uh, Rasmus Hoygaard, 
I hope I've spelled it, said it right. Um, very good, Andy. Very good. Young Danish fellow. He's obviously following in the footsteps of a certain, you know, a few Danish, significant, you know, Danish golfers. Uh, in the past, of course, we've had um, Thomas Bjorn, probably the most famous um, of all, and and you know, terrific winner. And uh, just what an incredible, humble. I think is a fair word you you would put with him. Um, smart. Um, he knows his, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he wants to do. He's you know um, nineteen years of age. I think it's just he's the first millennial to win um, on the European tour. Um, he's born after two thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think technically no, he isn't the first millennial. Is he? I think we've had a millennial, a two thousand, but he's born after the year two thousand, two thousand one. Yeah. So nineteen years of age, just incredible maturity around the golf course i've watched in the last sort of month or so and and i have to say that you know full of admiration for everything that he does and he doesn't mind going low on the last day noticed he did so a couple of weeks back at um um marriott um the Is it hanbury manor hanbury manor yeah the um the tournament that andy sullivan won and you know i think he shot something like 64 or something like that on the last day just incredible. And then he goes and shoots 65 um, around the Belfry to get himself into a playoff at the weekend um, and uh, and came out on top. Got a feel for, um, oh, his name's just slipped me, um, Walters um, from South Africa, who, who led, led the yes. tournament virtually from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and just didn't get the job done. You know, both were looking for uh, maiden victories, um, you know, and I think he's twice twice uh, Rasmus's um, age. <laughs> um, both looking for their maiden victories, uh, you know, it gets very difficult as you get older, of course. And of course, they, they uh, I suppose, the the balls of youth. I'm going to call it that. Mm-hmm. Really, you know, it just you know the courage that youth have today. And and one of the things I really want to say about this, obviously, we'll move on to. Um, you know, to the US uh, and the playoffs. But the um, youngsters are able to win much more significantly now. And, you know, they're being trained much more clinically to be able to win. Uh, You know, are are there swings there? I'm not sure. Are there physical strengths there? Definitely not. They're not going to be as strong as they will be when they're 24, 25. Um, but ultimately, their their mindset is is very much molded and stronger, um, you know, than ever. You know, we were, you know, in my my era. You know, those of you that don't know, I'm 51 years of age. So, you know, I was around, um, you know, as a teenager when the Faldos and Sevies and Langers and and, and the like were. Um, you know, at their heights of their game or coming to prominence in the game in the 80s and 90s. And so, you know, when I was 19, 20 years of age, I, you know, I was still scared to win. Um, didn't know what it, you know, capable, but didn't know how to. And, you know, these guys now are not scared to win at all. And, you know, and we've seen it, um, I think it was Lorazabel, um, one in his teens and, you know, about, there's a few other guys that, you know, they come and go. That's the thing I will say. 
Um, you know, they can win early, but I don't think this guy, you know, Rasmus, I think he's here mm. to stay. I think he's part of the new crop and, you know, of course, Sam Horsfield as well as a youngster. And, he, you know, it's like Sully's been around forever. I think he's still a bit of a youngster, really. And, but, you know, we've, there's, there's a crop of youngsters that are coming through now. Number one, they're not scared to win as teenagers or early 20s. You know, we saw it with Tiger, you know, sort of 20 odd years ago now. And, you know, there is definitely a mind set now at, um, that, that wasn't around 30 years ago. And, um, you know, he didn't have youngsters. Sebi came on the scene as a youngster, but he, you know, and was obviously still fairly young when he won his first major, but, um, and, and very young when he won on tour. But um, generally speaking, you know, they're few and far between. There seems to be more and more of them now. Um, mm. And you, you're mindful of that in the England setup, you know, Gareth, with with the yeah. work that you did at England Golf. Um, you know, is it because we've got a program of development that's that is, you know, encouraging that? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I I was lucky enough to spend a, quite a lot of time with with Nigel Edwards, kind of the, the performance director at England Golf, and mm. he he prided himself with every single crop of youngsters that came through of doing the basics brilliantly. That was yeah. his kind of mantra, and he always started from the green back. So if you could work on the putting and short game and just do those skills brilliantly, you yeah. were going to kind of optimize your performance and be able to compete very competitive. It was a very professional setup Mm -hmm. in terms of the organizational and um, having experience with with a lot of the players who played in um, different countries. So I had experiences over in Australia, South Africa, Brazil. So they didn't just stay and play in local tournaments. It was very much, they went abroad and they played like a tour player. So Mm -hmm. boys and girls, even if that was at every age group, they had an experience and they almost had that tour experience and that taste at a very early age. So when they make that transition to the European tour, either ladies or, or gents, um, they, they're already there. They've already had these experiences of, of traveling, jet lag, hotels, different food, different golf courses, different grass formats and types. Yeah. So, yeah, it uh, was a very professional run organization and, and, and program at England Golf and, credit to all the people who are involved there. And is that still in situ now? Yes. Yeah, continue. Just kind of Nigel's doing a great job and Nigel's going to be heading up the, the kind of the GB Olympic um, setup next year in, in okay. Tokyo. So he's, he's got such a breadth of experience from the amateur game into now into the, the England golf setup and then going into the GB squad as well. So, yeah, great, great opportunity there for for some, uh, hopefully some uh, further Olympic success on the back of Justin a few years ago. Yeah, of course, you know, Justin Rose winning, you know, the, the sort of the first um, golf event and, um, you know, in, in the Olympics. And that's, you know, fantastic. Of course, it is a sport, and, you know, worthy of an Olympic status, I think. Um, so no reason why it shouldn't be. And, um, you know, I know Justin is extremely proud to be a gold medal winner and, um, you know, great opportunity, you know, was had and he took it, grasped it with both hands and, um, you know, it, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see, you know, who's going to be able to, um, you know, sort of raise that medal, you know, really and, and, and receive mm-hmm. it. Um, 
Yeah, I think, you know, from a performance point of view, you know, we talk about performances and we talk about the capabilities. You know, it's very interesting. I had a young man, I was only talking to, I've got a young youngster at the moment. I'm going to give him a shout out, Kai Christian. Kai is a, you know, fantastic young lad. He's dedicated to, you know, to the training that we do. And, um, you know, came to see me uh, a little and uh, two years ago now playing off 22 the age of 11 and you know i think he's you know in the two-hour consultation that we did on his short and putting and short game he, he spoke about three words to me i think dad translated um everything and you know he didn't need translation you just you know those of your parents that have got very shy youngsters um i don't struggle to get communication with him now which is great um it's not that he doesn't shut up because he's very focused during his sessions with me. Um, uh, he he sends me, you know, think about it now. I have over 750 videos from Kai of his training. Um, he, he will often send two or three at a time, but, um, you know, he'll always send me, he sends me a video every single day. Um, and if he, if he misses because he's playing in the tournament, um then i'll get to the following day you know he really is dedicated and it's where the training program you know starts in the studio and and finishes on the golf course um but that's every single day it starts in the studio and then finishes on the golf course every day and you know he, i don't see him every day so just to clarify that but i do see him every day because he sends me a video i watch him every day I, you know we are now reevaluating his goals you know, for this season. So the, the goals at the start of the season were to have his handicap from 11 to six. Um, you know, he's now down to five. And, he, you know, um, he, he went from 22 to 11, you know, in the first year and, you know, started the beginning of this year playing off 11. He wanted to get down. He hasn't had an awful lot of opportunities to play as most in competition as most haven't. Um, but he's, he's grasped his opportunities in the last 12 tournaments. He's playing on the Robert Rock Junior Tour here in the UK and really enjoying himself. He's, he's qualified for the end of season um, you know, event at Little Aston, uh, which is literally on my doorstep. And, um, you know, he, he's been totally dedicated to, you know, getting that handicap down and, and shooting a par round a golfing competition which he's now done. So he's now looking to break par. He's re-evaluating his goals and moved. He's now looking to get his handicap down to three before the end of the year. He's playing a 5.3. So, you know, very feasible. He's got to work hard now um, to do so, of course. You know, he's, you know, he shoots par and only comes down half a shot, but that's potentially four rounds of golf. And we are looking at, um, you know, before the world handicap system comes into place now for him to be down to three. I think believe that scratch will be you know something he'll do he'll he'll knock that one off real quick as well and for somebody who isn't 14 until march is um you know he's he you know he, he understands his goals and and understands what it is that he's trying to achieve now and we talked about you know uh, you know we ask we you know, talk about experiences all the time and i talked about a young lad that came to see me and he sat sat down on my bench um, in the back of my uh, swing studio a number of years ago, maybe 15 years ago now, and I'm not going to mention any names uh, at this point in time, but he came to me and I said, right, you know, um, you know, Dad knew a bit about sport and was involved in the IOC at a level in sport. Again, I won't mention the actual discipline, but 
you know, they knew about sport and disciplines and requirements. And I said to him, you know, I'll call him Bob, um, you know, so then Bob, what, uh, you know, what's your ambitions in golf? I want to be world number one by the time I'm 21. Straight off the back. I mean, I've, I have never heard a player talk like that or even consider it. You know, dad wasn't around. Um, it was, he was in the car park, but he just left him to me and, you know, sort of, right, okay. I've never heard that level of dedication. And, he, you know, you don't know of a Bob that became world number 20, uh, world number one in the last 15 years. Um, so needless to say, he didn't make it. Now, you know, and of course his name wasn't Bob, so, you know, I can't tell you, but I'm telling you now he didn't make it. Um, and part of the reason for that, and actually you mentioned it a little while ago there, Gareth, about the, um, you know, the, the setup um, at England where they travel like tour players from an early age. And one of the things that he couldn't cope with was travel. He couldn't mm -hmm. cope with being um, homesick. Um, as a youngster, he went to America, got a college program, you know, went out there. I think he lasted three weeks before his first bout of homesickness kicked in, you know, and, you know, a few sort of challenges that came in around being homesick and, you know, youngster, certain age and, you know, you just get, you know, the, the challenges that go with it. And, uh, you know, I don't think he managed to complete his first semester. So, you know, he was out. Um, you know, back before they, you know, he may well have come back at Christmas and didn't go back. I can't, you know, it's 15 years ago now. And, you know, he, he just couldn't do it. He just, you know, the travel element and being away from family and, and you're realising that that's part of what the job is. Not everybody's cut out to be world number one, who is also a prolific traveller and lives out of suitcases and hotels and airports and courtesy cars and, you know, strange foods and away from the family for weeks on end. And, you know, we've seen it with the players, this, you know, in the bubble, you know, yeah. not able to cope with being in the bubble, you know, um, you know a number of players who have just said, no, can't cope with it, you know, and it's, um, it, you know, for, for a myriad of reasons, you, you know, great golfers do not become, great tournament players because they you know they don't want to do the journeying around you know i've talked about it briefly in the past you know i don't enjoy the journeying either much rather spend time in my own bed you know and i would mm. have you know and you know it's not about spending a long time in my own bed you know it's just about waking up in my own bed you know each day and you know and that's a really important part of becoming a tournament professional and and oftentimes an overlooked part and i think that is the difference you know, as you said there, you know, the cutting edge in terms of performance on the golf course is one thing, but off the golf course is another. Learning the different cultures, learning different time zones, you know, playing, you know, with your body, struggling with jet lag. These great players do it all the time now, um, mm. you know, and, um, you know, there's a huge element of that is based on nutrition and fitness, and we know they're a lot fitter. I will say this, that they're not as nutritionally fit as they should be, um, you know, and I can vouch for that significantly i do observe some of the most ridiculous eating habits um you know and i'm not saying that i'm perfectionist on it but um so, you know a lot more um you know about it in the last few years and you know understand what nutrition benefits you know offer to you and um you know in terms of performance having the right fuels inside the body you know before you go out and you know sort of being able to play um 
you know, eating the right amount of food and the right type of food before you go out. You know, gone are the days where, you know, the bacon butty and, you know, as you know, <laughs> um, I know you're still partial to a bacon butty there, but, um, you caveman, you Gareth, but, um, uh, you know, I mean, that's just, you know, you, you just don't need to be having that kind of ridiculously crap food um you know the, the quintessential english breakfast before you go out and i know you know there's a few of you there will be shouting at the um your earphones going no it's just the same as it is over here as it is in america and then you know anywhere else in the world you know, yeah but you don't need that kind of junk inside you to, to play your best golf um you know that said i did recognize a few comments said the other day that not being able to take our own drinks onto the golf course now it's strange playing sober i thought that was a quite a, quite a good quote that was <laughs> they've been playing golf since lockdown and taking a few tins with them and um you know so <laughs> uh by the time they got into around the 14th or 15th hole could barely stand up but they said that they you know they play some of the best golf they've ever played in their lives um unfortunately not allowed to happen now as they have to buy from the clubhouse um but yeah it's um you know, performance is is not just playing great golf on the golf course, and you know, and we'll sort of lend ourselves back towards, or lean back towards the uh, the golf on the golf course. Now it is a a full mixed bag of reasons why a player can or can't perform. You know, and um, you know why a player sometimes in you know some continents or you know some countries just really struggle to get it going and others just love being in certain con countries and continents and you know um you know and, and my hat's off to a lot of the americans who you know will travel from the pga tour around the globe you know playing different continents because you know there's a lot of money to be had on the pga tour and you know quite a comfortable consistent lifestyle when you do that if you're good enough to be on there, by all means, stay on it. But, you know, journey yourself around and understand a little bit more about the cultures of the world. But, you know, the different time zones, the different golf courses and, you know, and educate yourself more. And, um, you know, my hat's off to those that do. And, you know, it's what typically you'll see the guys that do are the guys that have got the longer careers The, you know, they're more capable of, of dialing in and, and getting the job done when it comes to the major championships and, and of course gives themselves the opportunity to win one of the four majors with it being here in the UK. So um Gareth, what did you notice over the weekend uh on the golf that you saw on TV that um stands out? I I'd, I'd, I'd say I'm not sure if it was just the golf course or the difficulty of the golf course, but the the short game in particular, I know we're a, we're going to favour the short game side of things, being who we are and what we want to talk about. But I thought that was absolutely outstanding. I think I watched the top kind of 20 shots from the tournament the other day and I counted 18 of them were, were all short game shots. If that wasn't, wasn't a pitch, if that was a chip, it was a flop, it was a putt. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing, absolutely amazing showcase. And somebody I really admire at the moment, I think is just, I don't know if it's through lockdown or it's been more under the microscope with their short game, but Justin Thomas, the way he pay, plays those kind of pick shots around the green and the way he's putting at the moment, I just think he's a he's somebody, especially to watch going into mm. the US Open in a couple of weeks' time. Mm. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I will say about Justin Thomas, he, he, I was watching one of the a, a tournament a couple of weeks back. Um, it may well have been the PGA Championship, I think. And um, 
for the USPGA. And and I think, you know, one of the commentators was saying, you know, there was it was hitting a 40-yard pitch. I think it may well have been the driver will par four, is 16th, you know, right at the back mm-hmm. end of the, of the course. And he got a 40-yard shot. He just knocked it stone dead. And, you know, the guy said, you know, this is a shot that he did not have in the bag when he came out here. Now, you do not get out onto the PGA Tour, and he's been out a number of years now, you know, I'm going to say probably 10 years, but, you know, he's been out long enough now, you know, but also still a relatively short period of time. He, How good was he without a short game then? You know, to get out, you don't get out on the short game. uh, Sorry, you don't get out on the PGA Tour without a short game or without the skills. Clearly, he got the skills. Number one, you got to have the scores, and it really doesn't matter, I suppose, where the scores come from because the scorecard doesn't tell us where the scores are all made up. But, you know, he didn't have those skills in the short game that he's got today. And, you know, he's been, how many wins has he had? 13, 14 wins, something like that mm-hmm. now, which is a terrific, um, you know, amount for any career. And, you know, still a, a young man. So, you know, he could double that without, you know, sort of even thinking too much about it. Um and yeah, it's good to cope with the current crop of youngsters, of course. But um, you know, when you look at that, it's like you know, number one, how good a golfer was he without a short game? But you know, dialing himself in now and recognizing the short game is so vitally important. Um, you know, he the work that he's done. You know, his dad's his coach, so you know, the work he's done with his dad, you know, has been tremendous to to enhance those skills and. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a putting stroke that I've admired. I think that um, you know, every now and again, you know, stroke looks a little bit loose, but it, you know, generally speaking, they've got great setup, great posture. You know, nice arm hang. You know, swings the putter nicely from the shoulders. I think you know, like anybody, you know, we're going to have a few strokes that go awry and you know miss the odd putt from here and there. But um, you know, certainly shows a lot of character. You know, of the player who can come out and win. Um, you know, when you when you lose an event as well and, you know, he fix, picks himself up by the bootstraps and, you know, gets the job done a couple of weeks later. So, you know, yeah, terrific short game. Um, and, of course, you know, we look at short game stats, um, you know, all the time because of what we, you know, what, what I'm focusing on as a coach, you know, is what is it the best players are able to do? You know, it's, it's no uh, coincidence, I think, that the guys with the best short game generally come out on top. But there's, there are times where the, the the stats don't quite tell us everything we need to know about the rest of the game in comparison to the week that they win. You know, um, that there's a very, very small incremental improvement, you know, not even a half a shot around, you know, um, in, improvement. And that could well be just one putt every two rounds. And there's your half shot around and you have you know, you've leapt to the top of the pile and, you know, instead of being an also run and, um, you know, I mean, it'd be remiss of us to not quote some of the putting stats that we saw from, um, you know, this weekend with John Rahm. I mean, you know, wow. let, yeah. let, let's just talk about two putts. That, <laughs> you know, in the first instance, Dustin Johnson has to hold, was a 25, 30 foot putt? on the last green mm-hmm. to get into the playoff, which is hit at perfect speed on a perfect line. And you can see the ball tracking, you know, it, I don't think speed was so much of an issue. You know, when you know the line relative to the speed, you know, ultimately get it online and that ball was going to get there. The greens are so quick, but 
you know, when you then look at the part that wins the playoff, I mean, you know, it's just absolutely remarkable to think that, you know, sort of what's that, 65, 70 feet. It was the centre of the hole as well, Andy, wasn't oh, it? Oh, dead centre, plum centre, <laughs> perfect speed. You know, it wouldn't have gone more than a couple of foot past the hole. You know, absolutely pure. Interestingly, it tracked in almost on the same line as as Dustin's um, last third of the putt. Um, you know, to get into the playoff. So you know, just just incredible. And you know, it's hard enough at that range to to get the golf ball close to the hole. You know, and I'm sure commentators were saying, you know, anything inside six feet will be a great putt from here. But to actually bomb that putt in, you know, is uh, was was just spectacular. And uh, I think he showed he was reasonably excited as well afterwards. But um, <laughs> but you know, strokes game putting, you know, three point eight eight uh, inside ten feet. He was ninth ranked in the field. And, you know, put that into context, there were 70 people or 69 players playing in that event this week um, with 92.65% conversion um, inside 10 feet. Now, an awful lot of that would be much closer to the hole. You know, we generally know that the guys that win, you know, are right up there. They don't miss inside five feet these days. Um, you know, so he, he's converted pretty much everything. You know, he's probably missed, what, two or three putts at the very most, I would think. Um, looking at those numbers there. Um, you know, yeah, just just incredible numbers. 10 to 15 feet, he was ranked 20th with 40% conversion. And then 30% uh, conversion from 15 to 20 feet. Now, he's up on the game there because, uh, obviously, I finished seventh at that point. Now, you know, the up on the game ultimately is... Um, you know, sort of 15 to 20, uh, 20 feet, you're typically looking at somewhere around about 25% um, at 15 and, and heading towards the 20% mark at 20. Uh, and his 30% conversion is a one in three conversion inside 15 to 20 feet, which is just incredible. Whereas mm. ordinarily somewhere between, um, you know, around about one in five. So he's, he's, he's up quite comfortably there. And of course, 10, uh, to 15 feet, 38% is ordinarily the number around about the uh, 10 foot mark. So anything better than that, you know, from 10 to 15 and he's way up there. And of course, he's halfway into the field, you know, 70, 75 or 70 golfers, you know, sort of he's ranked 20th. So he's ahead of the average on the field. So, um, you know, just he, his whole reason for the win was, was putting ultimately. But you can't look, you know, and this isn't about just waiting everything over putting. This is all about understanding that his whole game was there, but he stepped ahead of his class, you know, mm. with the putter and, you know, sort of 3.8, um, nearly 3.9 strokes gained um, with the putter. His approach play, just for the record, uh, 2.98 or 2.99, really, um, and he's driving 2.98. Six. I mean, just you know, it's it's plus three, nearly plus four on putting, nearly plus three, and plus uh, on driving and approach play. And you know, that's the reason why he goes into, you know, the the tour championship and also the U.S. Open. Probably was he's got to be joint favourite. I think we just yeah, you know, I think so. 
you know, I, it'd be very difficult to pull the chain between those, and and arguably, you know, sort of Justin Thomas as well. But I would say that my my pick, I think John Rahm's ready to win a U.S. Open. He's won around a golf course that is U.S. Open ready, and you have to show incredible patience. We we saw, a, you know, a, a a bit of patience lost, which he was able to recover. Um, at uh, Muirfield Village, but ultimately, you know, he he's just shown himself on a U.S. Open type venue. Um, you know what it's like um, to win under the most excruciating pressure. You've got to hit it straight. You've got to hit it long. You can do that, you know. But you've got to be able to put in short game. So yeah, just uh, hats off, John Rahm, and you know, sort of Justin Johnson. What what a vein of form he's in. Um, I just and that's the most emotion I've ever seen him on on that pot on eighteen. I think ever. I know. A little fist bump and a little kind of wry smile. Yeah, you know, um, but it never looked like it was going to miss. He just over the putt, ready to knock it in, and and of course he did. It was just, yeah, incredible. Um, so you know, an amazing sort of tournament. I know we only touched it really on a couple of putts, but um, you know, just an amazing. Um, tournament and you know just it's it, you know we, we got a little bit of a washout here in the UK at the Belfry albeit you know we finished on time and um, you know the, the the golf course was in spectacular condition even though it did get washed out on the first day <coughs> quite heavily um, it, it held up it held up lovely and um, you know that wouldn't mind going to have a game of golf. Fancy a game of golf down at the Belfry. Um, no, definitely. I think we could organise that. I think we definitely have got to organise that before the end of the year. That'd be amazing. Yeah, it will be. It will be. But um, yeah, it's uh, it, you know the, the golf course defends itself. I think now it defends itself with the greens. Um, you know they are so pure. They can get them so quick, which they were running really nice. Um, you know the pin positions they can really. You know, not trick the golf course up because I don't think you can trick a golf course up with as uh, strong as the uh, as the Brabazon course is. But um, you know, they can put the pins into places where if you get it wrong, you know, you are you are, you are going to have to do well with the second putt because you can't get the first putt um, close. Mm-hmm. It's a couple of holes in particular, eleven and um, and well, I'll go as far as it, nine, eleven. And um, eight, uh, 18 as well, but 16 yeah. especially. When if you get the wrong side of the slopes, then it can be extremely difficult to get anywhere near the flag, um, especially when the flags are at the bottom of the greens and um, you know you get wrong sided. 11, the best players in the world, you know, or best players in Europe playing the European Tour event are not likely to get the wrong side of the slope, but. You know, it's um, if you're on the top and putting down the slope, the slope is that severe. You've got a 15 or 20 foot putt on the green if you haven't putted it off the green. So, you know, that, that 16 is the same. You know, we saw 18, the challenges of getting the ball on the right tier, um, you know, that it throws up there. But any time you're above the hole, those tiers are so severe that, um, you know, you can be made to look very silly. Uh, very quickly and you know um, players were made to look silly quickly uh, in in some of the occasions but only a few times because the distance control is one of the things I'll say you know now distance control these best players have great distance control mm-hmm. you know the ones that you see struggling are the ones you know like you and I mate uh, you know I don't mind admitting 
apart from a few wedge shots these days, um, we have decent distance control. I haven't got the same control over the six iron and the five iron and, and you know, even the seven and eights that I used to have. And, you know, the distance you come up a little bit short or, you know, flush one a little bit, you know, because we don't play as much golf as we used to, I guess. Um, yeah, I think from something what I, I went through last week, I went through a gapping session. Mm. Um, I haven't had a gapping session in about six months and shout out to kind of Tom Gibbs who supported me with the gapping session. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was great experience because uh, it was a heavy session, a lot of golf balls, but yeah. at least it gave me my kind of range. I'm not saying optimum, but a range of the worst to the best strike and give me a distance that I'm going to be hitting my golf shot. And when I played over the bank holiday weekend, it made me feel a lot more reassured as I stood over a golf shot. That Is that when right you're trying to hit a pitching wedge somewhere between 100 and 140 yards? Is that sort of... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's you know, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You know, I mean, I I used to have a disperse, and I've got my disbursements for the record guys are, you know, my distance on my wedges is actually pretty solid. Um, I'm normally within about four or five yards of my uh, of my distance on shots, so I'm quite comfortable with that. And my left to right disbursements are also pretty tight, but it's crazy when they get out to sort of you know eight iron, you know, all of a sudden disbursement can go from you know around about 10 yards i mean you know 142 to 152 you know um and that's because my the missed strike you know i'd ordinarily i'm i'm gauging 148 to 150 um you know for my distance on my eight iron i don't hit the golf ball as far as i used to but i never really hit the eight iron much more than about 155 and i always played it as my 150 club um mm. You know, a little bit of breeze down, 150 club becomes a nine. I can't remember the last time I hit nine on 150. Um, you know, but but it's, you know, incredible to think that now I've got a 10-yard gap, whereas I'd have a four to five-yard gap with my, you know, my wedge shots and my, um, you know, my, my sort of um, irons. It, it, you know, when we're looking, and somebody said, I was watching one of the Ryder Cup videos the other day and, um, Colin Montgomery was asked who would be the most difficult person to uh, uh, to caddy for, and, and I can't remember the first part of the line. He, he said it would be Bernard Langer. Most of us are working to yards, and he's working to inches or something along those lines. Um, he, you know that that be absolutely fine, but you know I think he may have said three to five yards, um, you know, of distance, and he's working to inches. And you know, there was a Ryder Cup at the Belfry in 1993, and I've shared this with a few folk before, but I'm not so sure I've said it in a podcast. But Monty, this is why Monty references Langer. Monty had got a yard here, he was standing by the sprinkler head with 18th hole at the Belfry, 1993, and practice round. And they're going through the pairings um, for the 93, uh, four balls and foursomes. And Bernard calls over to Monty and says, what yardage do you have from the um, sprinkler head there? And these sprinkler heads were, you know, big sort of fairway sprinklers. They were sort of a 15-inch um, head diameter. And, um, you know, there's a shot over water to a multi-tier green. Pin was in the middle of the green for practice day. And he said, um, he said I've got 193, Bernard, um, to the front of the... Um, top to, uh, the middle tier he said is that from the front or the back of the sprinkler head <laughs> and colin looked at him and he just went if that's what it takes to be the best 
at the best, you know, then I have to look at, you know, these distances as well, more, much more clinically. And, you know, back in the day, back in the eighties, you know, when I, um, I think had picked it up from his rounds of golf were playing with Greg Norman. Greg Norman used to work to half yard increments and, you know, between the clubs. So, you know, he might hit a nine iron, 142 and a half yards. And, you know, mm. you remember we're talking about distances being significantly different today as they are back then because we were different lofted on the clubs. So, you know, his nine iron may well have been a 45 degree club. Pitching wedge being 50, um, around about that sort of number. And ultimately, you know, so a, a modern day pitching wedge, um, he, he may well have been hitting that 142 and a half. I mean, it's, it's just crazy when you think that these are the distances that these um, guys will work to. Half yard, mm. why not? You know, yeah. why not? You know, it, it, it's if you know what your numbers are, then you hit them. You know, it's, um, it, you know, and these guys were pretty darn accurate. So it's, you know, but we know it's not always about being on the golf course that makes the difference in performance. A lot of it starts before we even get out there. And, you know, I think at some point we will bring into being the, you know, nutritions and, you know, what certain food types, if you're interested in that type of thing, it'll be a, an interesting listen because, you know, food types on the golf course will make a huge difference to the way you perform. And, you know, I'm sure many of us are working off certain superstitions anyway, mm -hmm. and we eat a certain type of food or a certain type of drink we consume before we go out because we've played well having done that in the past, mm -hmm. not yeah. necessarily knowing why we played well with it or actually that it's not giving us some kind of false performance because it actually doesn't do, uh, you know, the, the job on the tin that we think it is. So, mm -hmm. you know, any more thoughts before we... Uh, close off this bonus um i just wanted to touch really on the the, the kind of training side of things that we touched on before and mm. we, we talked uh, a, a lot previous podcasts around our, um, the t-stroke product range yeah. which again if, if people aren't familiar with please go and check andy's website andygormangolf.com because amazing products i'm not just saying because i'm attached to andy but revolution mark revolutionized my putting approach in my actual practice um, and Andy's got about now 16 affiliations with either training aid companies or manufacturers. And yeah. I just wanted to know from you, Andy, that kind of for your experience of training aids, was there any that kind of were the simplest of simple ideas that you thought that is amazing? Why haven't I thought of that? And how then did that get developed into the kind of product? Oh, crikey. I mean, there are dozens. Yeah, you know, there's so many that I think about when I look at it. You know, and the product that, you know, I've worked on for a number of years in, in my own um, studio, as you know, um, you, you know, we, we had a, a product and I'm not saying it will never go to, you know, to manufacture, um, you know, but it's very, very similar to the putting board. And, mm. you know, the putting board is a great product that, we, you know, so simplistic that's the thing i think the most efficient and the most effective training aids are simple and they're, they're simple when you look at them you can see immediately what they're doing and why they do it you know i think that's one of the things that's really really, really important it has to be self-explanatory and you know again i would put my hands up and say to some degree that t-stroke doesn't always um go on the club and explain itself properly you know mm -hmm. you know straight away and it's like oh yeah of course 
you know, once it's on the club correctly and, you know, the player sort of have, has the club in place. But, yeah, putting board, um, Pat Gross, Luke Donald's coach, develops great products, you know, check it out. Um, you know, putting board is, a, you know, for me, is, is a great product. It's developed to um, understand the implications of putting in plane, so the shaft plane angle, uh, move the putter from side to side and see how that putter glides effortlessly from side to side, what makes it happen, what, you know, feels come from that. And, and you know, one thing that we will say is that, you know, putting stroke does not go round the body and arc is not something you should be trying to do, nor is straight back and straight through. Now, the, the reference of arc and strong arc or slight arc or straight back and straight through, if we use one of the manufacturers, you know, sort of principles of trying to sell putters to fit certain types of strokes, is that the putting stroke, that reference is always about the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. But the putting stroke itself is straight and arced. Now, that sounds like an oxymoron, and it is and it isn't. Okay, so there's another oxymoron. So ultimately, the sweet spot of the putter swings on an arc because it's a circle in motion from the front. So if you can imagine a big circle, you know, looking at the front of the player, chest on, you would see a circular motion, albeit we see just a fraction of the base of the circle. But the movement of the putter head goes up and back down and up again um, as the putter moves away from the ball. When you look down the line, the sweet spot of the putter then tracks slightly inside. However, the sweet spot is rising. And the reason why it tracks inside is because of the angle of the shaft, somewhere between 65 and 70 degrees from the flat will ultimately get that putter shaft to um you know to the optimum fit and the lie angle of the club that will typically run from the hang of the forearms so when the shaft runs out of the forearms and the movement of the putter from side to side should be a straight line plane so mm -hmm. if the putter moves just 10 12 inches it's only going to come off the ground two to three inches at the very most so you know ultimately it's the upward movement whilst the shaft is inclined that causes the sweet spot to appear to arc. But the arc itself is just the rise and fall of the shaft plane and the extreme end of the uh, radius of the actual putting stroke. So the radius made up of the arms and the shaft of the club. So crucially, if you can imagine, you know, we've seen swing trainers, you know, plane swing explainer, those type of things. You know, tilted at an angle, that's what your putter um, is moving on, uh, albeit on a quite steep angle compared to your driver, which will be swinging at around about 50 degrees compared to a putter 65 to 70. So, you know, that's the, the putting board just helps you to understand that the putter is not swinging round the body. It's not arcing round the body, it's swinging back and forward in a straight line. And if you can swing the putter in plane, you have absolutely dialed in your putting stroke needs for delivering the club face square to the path and the path square to the plane because the plane and the path should work intrinsically together. They don't, of course, if the hands rise or the plane, the putter moves off the plane, um, hands rise, hands drop, whatever it might be that can affect the swing plane um, of the putter. So the, the putting board is a phenomenal piece of equipment very simplistic, um, very stable, very easy to understand. And of course, 
you know, it hasn't gone amiss by my count that Luke Donald's putting stroke has been somewhat guided by the uh, albeit slightly Heath Robinson approach to uh, you know to the putting board in its original format. And of course, as most putting training aids or most training aids often start in that kind of format, very sort of rudimentary and, and rustic, um, you, you know, you polish it up to become something that works more significantly. Um, and then you make a commercial product to recoup, um, you know, not necessarily the costs because, you know, there are cost implications that we talked about before, but ultimately, you know, you your students are saying can i get one can i get one and you know you don't need to be making up makeshift um training products so that putting boards one center cups another um and you know center cup did you know one of the most simple of all things was designed by a very good friend of mine ian melville um and designed in a caddy shed in jamaica uh caymanus golf club the the door was missing on the caddy shed um and you know i remember ian telling me that he he got a bamboo cane and put it under the arms of one of his players um playing on the um uh, the jamaican national team when ian was helping the national squad out um i'm gonna say it was jody mud and or jody munn and um and jody was you know she was a great player but you know struggled with her putting and Ian was helping her out and he got this concept of being able to rock the shoulders. Now, we've had a, plenty of discussions about that and I'm sure he'll discuss further, you know, when we, you know, sort of when he gets to listen to, um, you know, to this. But ultimately, um, he was rocking, wanting Jody to feel the rocking of the shoulders and sliding the bamboo cane up the door frame. Um, he then introduced me to what he believed was, you know, the, the ultimate training aid that he had. Um, Despite described by some uh, sort of pundits on the European tour as um, a garden shed, um, you know, which is a joke which, that we're familiar with um, because of its size. Um, ultimately, it's just a meter square. We popped on the side of the green and got players to come in and try on uh, on it. But ultimately, um, yeah, it became a little bit more sophisticated than you know, knocking up a door frame on the side of a putting green. So we had a very portable but they're also adjustable you know Ian brought it to me and I said to him look you know it can't work it has to be it can't be a one-dimensional approach it has to be multifaceted it has to cope with rotation as much as um you know the, the straight back and straight through pills principle you know of putting and you know subsequently you know Ian and his uh, partners developed uh, an adjustable version and you know worked very very well um you know, and you know, that's how I ended up getting on the European tour in the first instance. Um, you know, working with players inside the ropes with the Centre Cup training aid, and um, you know, it was described a few times. You know, it was like the explain hour of putting, or you know, the plane swing of putting. You know, just lots of different sort of analogies of it, um, but ultimately, it allowed you a player to feel the movements of the putter from side to side by utilizing the bigger frame muscles of the body and structure of the body, i.e. the chest and shoulder. So, you know, those, I know the, the toil and sweat that Ian went through that and, um, you know, sort of the, the head banging moments that mm. he had and, you know, designing a product that would then connect to a putter that 
then would go underneath your arms and you know ultimately allow you to feel the putting stroke it is not easy as we talked about you know in the smaller items um you know things that you can tuck into your pocket you know it's um pocket size training aids are great because they're pocket size um you know something that's more significant you know like a swing trainer or you know a putting stroke trainer like you know ian had with center cup was is much more of a challenge to to maneuver and get into place and do the things that you need to do and you know get players to feel but works a treat once you do it and um yeah you know but they are substantial they're not for the faint-hearted but they mm. work and that's the thing you know that's why these you know training products have, you know, have been successful and you know it's uh and of course then the route to market you know it's market 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 marketing all the time and it's cost 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 so you know if you can recoup your costs in the first instance you know then you've done well and you know if you decide to then expand it and sort of drag it around the world you know it um you know, then you've got a successful training product. And generally speaking, the successful ones are the ones that are you can fit in your pocket or the pocket of your golf bag. Um, mm-hmm. So there are challenges with the larger ones. But um, yeah, that, those those two, you know, for me at this point in time, certainly from a putting standpoint, you know, are, are really, you know, sort of prolific training aids that, that work, you know. Um, and that's, you know, that's the most important thing about a training aid. It has to work. It has, yeah, to do, exactly. it has to do what it's designed to do you know folk do design things that don't work um you know because they're designing them to do things that maybe they you know are slightly amiss of of what it is that they uh um you know thought should happen so you know for you know recreational golfers invariably have been training aids to me and say oh what do you think of this it's designed to do that well you're not designed to do that so why do you want mm-hmm. to try and do it that way and you know those those training products either then don't become successful at all, or you know they um they they sort of loads of money are spent and you know they disappear into the ether. You know, I mean that's that that's the thing. You, any criticisms for for a training product is you know having been there, done that, worn the t-shirt, you know, and and felt the costs. Um, you, you know, the the danger is that you go and do it and you know you you sort of hit the brick wall of cost over cost over cost and you know that doesn't actually do what you think it does or it doesn't do yeah. what everybody else thinks you should be doing um you know and it, it just designed on the wrong purposes unfortunately then causes things to fail and it's mm-hmm. you know of course i'm sure there are plenty of training aids that never got to market that were brilliant and absolutely you know should have been there and didn't through fear of you know either success or failure you know um you know because there's plenty of people fear success as much as they do failure so you know didn't want to be exposed to to having you know something that may or may not work and um and it just never made it to market and we never heard anything about it there was one that you know uh, i'm trying to think what it's called now but um it looked like an archery bow mm-hmm. um and it was a putting trainer, a little bit like my T-stroke, to be fair, connected over the top of the grip and um, and on and was adjustable. It went under the arms and across the chest, um, so then under the arms. And um, there's a professional here in the UK, um, Carl Yates. Carl was based at one of the municipals, and he actually had an endorsement from Ian Woosnam. Ian Woosnam was using it just prior to winning the Masters. Um, wow. 
and you know timing couldn't have been more perfect and you know Carl took the product to the states it just never took off and you know for whatever reasons and you know I do know a few of the reasons and they're not for me to repeat but you know for whatever reasons you know the product just never got past it I'm trying to think what it was called now you know put right or something like that um you know a phenomenal I, I traveled all around the world with that in my bag you know it's two-piece product that fits into the into the golf bag you know as long as you dismantle it um you know molded out of plastic it was a great it looked like an archery bow to be fair it's had some kind of semblance of that crossbow or something um but you know ridiculously good and simple and you know it worked um and it helped my putting while i was struggling you know um but uh, yeah product that never never really took off um so there's plenty of great products out there um they just don't get to market you know, no. or, or get to stand the test of time. Uh, we said the other day, one that has, and you know, adopt the cap to is um, Swing Guide. I think is mm. it's one that's been around for at least twenty years that I know of, and you know, it's before the turn of the century, so um, that it came out, and um, you know, it's through. Uh, uh, I think it's brought through uh, from Wade Ormsby. Now is the product ambassador. His his dad. Um, you know, there's a really. Sort of nice story around um, his dad's best friend if I remember the story correctly you know sort of left him the patent rights to it um, you know and in his will and you know he, he didn't didn't do anybody any harm by the things that he did with it so he took it to market and you know millions of products sold um, you know so yeah you know how much of that's contributed towards helping Wade on his uh, you know sort of rise to being a you know successful tour player you know albeit you know with fleeting success at times um you know i, I don't know but ultimately you know that the way um wade ormsby and his family have, uh, have had a great product out in the marketplace for many many years they're the ones that you know again a lot of people don't know about it's um you know but watch this space we're going to be having uh, a lot more training aids available to us through the web shop um yep. soon we've got an affiliation which will probably double the affiliations we have right now, um, you know, on the table at the moment. So, you know, be proud to launch that, you know, in due course. And, um, you know, we'll have those products available in the web shop um, going forward. So we've, uh, we've, we've cranked another hour out. Love um, it, Andy. So it's it, all about... Um, you know, so you know, again, guys, girls, I really do appreciate your uh, your audience. You know, I, I can do this without. I say this every week. Can do this without an audience. Um, it just ends up me talking to Gareth uh, about things that you know I've observed over the game of golf for my last forty plus years, uh, and obviously most current and recent. Um, but we do appreciate everybody. We appreciate the comments that are coming back and forth. You can follow us on all of the social channels on insta and uh, twitter and linkedin and soon to be on facebook as well once we get them to acknowledge that andy gorman golf is the place to be if I you know. want to talk <laughs> and short game um <laughs> and and of course the website andygormangolf.com if you're interested in any coaching anything at all whether it's online remote or um face-to-face -face, then contact me at uh, golf at andygorman.com andygorman.com not uh, andygormangolf or through the contact page on the website at andygormangolf.com do appreciate it gareth as always thank you so much for being the wingman uh and good friend and uh we look forward to catching up with you all next time stay safe
keep them rolling and we'll catch you soon. Bye for now.